Let's pray as we stand. In doubt or blessing, life or death, my Lord remains with me. Lord Jesus, we've already prayed that, that promise that you'll be with us to the end of the age. So whatever doubts we have, when feelings falter, when faith is weak, we want to stand on that promise that remains true, however we feel about it. And we thank you for your promise that you are with us now by your spirit, and that we're about to hear you speak to us from your word. So add your blessing to it, we pray, that we might receive this word uh, with joy and gladness, comfort and strength. In your own name, we ask. Amen. Well, please do take a seat. Uh, we're going to come now to uh, read God's word. We're actually going to read a different passage to the one on the sheet. Just to confuse you, that's my fault for getting it wrong when I sent all the information through to those who construct the sheet. Uh, the sheet. Um, we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments. We've been working through the book of Exodus, which is where we come across the Ten Commandments. And today we're coming to the Sixth Commandment. Now, if we were just to read the sixth commandment, it'd be pretty short. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, thou shalt not murder. So if you turn to page 810, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read some words of Jesus uh, speaking about that commandment. So Matthew chapter 5, it's on page 810 of the church Bibles. And after that, we will flick on to the, the one John one uh, on your sheet. Matthew 5 and verse 21. This is Jesus preaching. Uh, it's the Sermon on the Mount. So we're jumping in uh, to the middle of the sermon. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you'd be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. And then on to the book of 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, almost at the end of the Bible, uh, page 1022. It's a short letter of John. And we're going to read from verse 11, 1 John 3, verse 11. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, and how does God's love abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Thou shalt not murder. In many ways, it seems the easy commandment, doesn't it? Most of us, many of us, maybe even all of us, I don't know, all of us in this room perhaps uh, might think we've got a decent chance of getting through life without actually killing somebody. That's not true of absolutely everybody. But on the whole, when we get to the command, do not murder, we we kind of just sit back a little bit. Okay, I, I think I've got this one. So let's just let those words of Jesus sink in. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Perhaps you're new to Christianity, new to, uh, to church. You've heard about heaven and hell, and it's all seemed like kind of cartoon places. And here's Jesus saying that people who get angry at others, who insult others with words, are liable to the hell of fire. Now, straight away, Jesus is, is saying that commandment is much deeper than just what we do with guns and swords and knives. It's about our whole attitude to other people. And suddenly, therefore, too, the commandment is much, much closer to home, isn't it? And I want to bring that out at the beginning, um, partly because many of you will know those words of Jesus. So I don't think there's much point in me spending ages telling you not to kill people and then sort of five minutes before the end of the sermon saying, and of course, don't hate either. You know the commandment runs that deep. It is a serious commandment. It is a commandment, like all the commandments, that are given to God's people. Uh, remember, we're looking at the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. Uh, I'm sorry to jump around a little bit this morning, but it's, it's sort of a bit unavoidable when you're um, looking at something like um, do not murder. You know, there's more than one passage you can look at. But we are going to base most of our time in the book of Exodus. I know we didn't start there. But if you turn to Exodus 20, you'll see the commandment. Exodus 20 on page 61. Exodus 20. And we get the Ten Commandments. And down there in verse 13, you shall not murder. So already knowing that the commandment is, a, is about a, a deeper thing than, than just physically taking life, how are we meant to approach it? I don't want to jump in and just start telling you how not to murder or how not to be angry. To, to jump to the commandment would be to make a mistake, I think, because the commandments come in a context. They come in a setting. The commandments aren't given to the Egyptians, okay, the guys enslaving God's people. The commandments are given to God's people. So God clearly thinks his people still need these kind of reminders, these kind of commands. It is simply not the case that once you become part of God's people, once you become a Christian, you don't need anyone telling you what to do anymore. You don't need God telling you what to do. You're so full of the spirit that you, all that you ever do is right. If that was the case, there'd be no point having commandments, would there? God could just say, well, once you become a Christian, I'll put my spirit in you and you will be perfect. No, none of us are. We still need these words to guide us. But remember, too, the commandments aren't given to God's people before they're rescued. Where we are in the story of Exodus is that God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. 
And now that he's done all the rescuing, set them free, he says, now this is how to live. This is what freedom looks like. So the commandments aren't here to enslave us again. Oh, no. You're telling me if I'm a Christian, I can't murder anymore. I can't hate. That's so oppressive. No, they're here to set us free. This is what freedom looks like. So I want to start by thinking about the God who gives the commandments. And particularly that God is a God of life. As we focus on the, the, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. We need to remember God is a God of life. When he first appeared on the scene in the book of Exodus, do you remember where it was? It's not right at the beginning of the book, actually. As the, the people are enslaved and build, build storehouses for Pharaoh, God doesn't actively come on the scene. He doesn't appear till many years later when Moses is out in the desert. Moses, the, the leader, or the, the soon-to-be leader of God's people, is out in the desert looking after the flocks of his father-in-law. And he sees this bush which is burning but not burning. Children, do you remember this? There's fire in the bush. But as the fire burns, the, the wood doesn't get burnt up. That is the picture God uses to introduce himself to Moses. And both the flame and the name reveal something about him. That the flame, the fact the flame burns but doesn't consume the wood, it is an image of the fact that God has life in himself. He doesn't need anything else. He doesn't rely on anything or on anyone else. Already this morning, um, the, I've got a little baby. She woke up at half five. Um, since half five, I've consumed two, maybe three cups of coffee. I've consumed at least four pancakes, um, possibly more. I lost count. Um, I've had a glass of apple, apple juice. Um, I have consumed stuff to keep me going. I rely on it. I've consumed, I don't know how many gallons of air in and out. We rely on things and indeed people just to exist. So do plants. Children, plants need the sun, don't they, to grow. They need nutrients from the soil. Animals need to eat berries from the, the hedges. But God doesn't need anything to stay alive. He doesn't rely on anything. He has life in himself. That is why the fire, although it's down in the bush, he's not a God who's distant and far away, but it doesn't burn the bush because he doesn't need to rely on anything in creation. He doesn't rely on us. He doesn't need us to be really blunt. And in case the picture wasn't clear, he even gives his name that gives the same message as the flame. The flame and the name give the same message. The name that, that he gives to Moses, when Moses says, well, who are you? It's not, I am the God of love, or I'm the God of mercy, or I'm the God of grace, or I'm the God of punishment or justice. Or... God simply says, my name is, I am who I am. I am. I just, I am self-existent. I just exist. God is a God bursting with life. He is the source of all life. Uh, what is life? If I said, what does it mean to, to be alive? What is life? It's very hard to answer, isn't it? Very hard to answer. You know, scientists will say it's about various processes that have to go on, but they're arbitrarily chosen. We can reduce it to kind of chemistry or electromagnetic impulses. Or, but what is it? Life ultimately is God. He is the source of all life. He's the only one who is truly alive in himself. He doesn't rely on anything else. And he's not just there as this kind of iceberg floating in the sky, static. You know, I've got life in myself, but he is like a fountain of life. 
when his son comes to earth, Jesus comes to earth, he says this. Just, just listen to this. They're, they're really deep words. We're, we're diving in deep to start with this morning, and then we'll come up for it. Jesus says this. John 5, 26. Jesus says this. For as the father has life in himself, so he's granted the son also to have life in himself. Let me say that again. As the father has life in himself, so also he's granted the son to have life in himself. Jesus is talking about the Trinity, what we call the Trinity. God is not just one. Well, there's only one God. He is one God in these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deep mystery, of course. Uh, each is fully divine. It's not as if you have to add the three together to make up one God like slices of a pizza. Each one is fully divine. The Son, Jesus, as much God as the Father. The Holy Spirit, as much God as Jesus. Only one God, yet in these three persons, existing all at the same time. And Jesus gives a little tiny window into the life of the Trinity here. The Father has life in himself, and he gives life to the Son. From before the world began, from outside eternity, that the way that the Trinity works, as it were, is that the Father is the fountain of life, and he gives life to the Son. Those of you who've remember some of the creeds, perhaps, or you've read a bit of theology, sometimes known as eternal generation, or the Son is begotten of the Father. If that's nonsense language, just ignore it. It's not that the Father makes the Son, because then the Son would be a kind of creature. There was never a time when there was Father and not Son. Okay, they're both eternal. So this giving of life isn't something that started one day, as if there was once upon a time just a Father, and then he thought, you know what, I'll make a Son. No, not at all. This has always been going on, and yet there is, if you like, this flow of life, the Father to the Son. And indeed, we could keep going and add in the Spirit if we had time. What that means, to sort of try and surface a little bit, is that, 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 that almost within the Trinity, and we're stretching the bounds of human language here, but almost within the Trinity, there is this flow of life, Father, Son, Spirit. It's, the, the Trinity, our God, is not a sort of static rock, as I said, an iceberg, but this just energetic ball of life you know again human language really at its limits here so when we say god is life when god says i am who i am i am self-existent he is bursting with life and there's always been this giving within the trinity father to son son and father to spirit and then incredibly, as the Bible story actually begins, we find that he wants to share this life with us, with human beings. He had no need to. He didn't lack anything. But he wanted to. Uh, this joy that he or, or, always had. Uh, this blessedness, this happiness, this wonder that he always had. This life, as we call it, he decides to share with, well, with us. And so he makes the world, he makes the Garden of Eden in particular, and puts Adam and Eve in it. And we read in Genesis 1 that the seas teem with life, so many different creatures. You couldn't possibly count even the variety of them, let alone the number of them. The, the, the heavens, the skies teem with birds. He makes these lush grasslands and, and meadows of poppies, fields of tulips, 
and daffodils, these great rainforests that just echo with so many different noises. And he says to all this life, multiply, be fruitful and multiply. Those words are spoken not first to human beings, to Adam and Eve, but to the birds, to the sea creatures, to the animals. Life and more life. He just wants more and more life. And then he makes us. He makes, first of all, a man. Makes him out of the earth. And then breathes into him. Breathes his spirit into him. And so man comes to life. And man is the kind of apex of creation, the top of creation, receives life from God. And to start with, everything is this abundance, this excitement, this joy, this life, this wonderful paradise garden. And then, of course, we ruin it. Murderers creep into Eden. The devil, spiritual being, we don't know much about his origin, started good but somehow turned corrupt comes and tries to kill Adam and Eve. Kill not by sort of attacking them with a pitchfork like you see in cartoons, but kill by lying to them, by trying to get them to, to, to doubt God's goodness. Disobey him, they say. Move away from God. He's trying to keep you down. He's not the source of life and blessing and joy. He's keeping that, that tree over there. He's keeping it away from you because that is the real blessing. If you just disobey God, you'll become more human, more alive. You'll become greater. That's always the lie of sin, isn't it, by the way? Sin promises us that, that actually it can really deliver happiness and joy. Why is it that you sin? Why is it you watch the film you shouldn't watch? Why is it that you, you grab the thing you shouldn't grab? Whatever it may be, why is it? Because you think that'll bring you happiness. Even sins like getting angry and shouting at people, you think that is going to make things better. He deserves me to shout at him, so I will shout at him, and that will make life better somehow. Adam and Eve believed it, took the fruit, and became murderers themselves, killing themselves and killing all humanity who came after them. Death came into the garden, a horrible intrusion. It was never meant to be part of God's plan. It's not where the universe is going, but death came. The first murderers were Adam and Eve. And yet God is, is so full of life and wants to share this life so much that he didn't just leave us to it. He didn't let death win. He promised Adam and Eve that one day someone would come and crush the murderer, crush Satan. He promised one day ultimately his son would come. And on the journey between Eden and Jesus coming, he, he told a story. And he made sure that story was acted out in history. He promised a particular land, the land of Israel or Canaan, the promised land. He promised it would flow with milk and honey, that everyone would have as many figs as they wanted and sit under their own vine tree. Have you ever been to the Mediterranean or perhaps even Israel? You know, beautiful kind of um, warm sun beating down, but the shade of a tree and rich wine and olives and grapes. God said, that's what it's going to be like. But again, they kept disobeying. And so eventually he sends his son. Jesus comes on the scene and comes to give life. I've come, says Jesus in John 10. I've come so they may have life and have life to the full. God would not be put off even by our sin. I want to bless you with life. I do not want death to win. Satan can't triumph. That's how committed God is to blessing you with life. And by life, I don't just mean staying alive I mean this kind of flourishing eternal joyful life 
that God enjoys in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and wants to share, started sharing in Eden before it was ruined. Eternal life in the Bible isn't just about going on and on and on forever, although it does go on forever, but eternal life is about the quality of life. Now, ultimately, Jesus died, faced the death sentence that we deserved in order that he might give life to us. God can't die, he's immortal, we're told several times in the Bible. But he becomes mortal, he becomes a man so that he can die instead of us. That's how committed he is to rescuing people, to saving you, to be able to share this eternal life in heaven with you. And it's all free. He doesn't ask anything from you. He doesn't say, look, as long as you keep eight of the Ten Commandments, then you can have eternal life. He doesn't say, as long as you try really hard, then you can have eternal life. He says it is a gracious gift. It's free. Just take it. You receive it, in other words, by faith. Again, if you're new to Christianity, Christianity is not about keeping the commandments to go to heaven. Rather, it's about realizing you can't. You can't keep the commandments. You can't do enough. But God has done everything, particularly in giving his son to die in our place. So that if we'll come to him and say, look, I, I want to put my trust in you, not me, in Jesus dying in my place then that simply we're given eternal life and one day we'll receive it. So you see, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you put your trust in Jesus, you lack nothing. It doesn't look like that, does it? You'll be able to look around the room and think, well, she's got a bigger house. He's got more money. Uh, they've got children and, and we haven't. Or You'll be able to see lots of things you lack. And the world is always telling you, you need more, you need more, you need more. But actually, you lack nothing. God has promised to bless you with abundant life one day. Now, on the journey between now and, and going home to heaven, of course, some will have more money, some less. Some will have more friends, some fewer. Some will have more children, some fewer. Some will have good health, some will have worse health. Yes, there are varieties in their heart. But ultimately, if you're a Christian, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And the future is unbelievably bright. God is a God of life, and he's promised to give you that life. And to those kind of people, he says, therefore, do not murder. There you go, finally, the commandment. Therefore, do not murder. Uh, the commandment itself, down there in verse 13, let's look at the commandment. God is a God of life, but now let's look at the commandment. The commandment is, is, is simply don't take life illegitimately. Obviously, don't murder. I'm going to take that as read. You know you should not take someone else's life. Okay? I'm going to say nothing else about that. I hope that is pretty clear. But the commandment isn't, do you notice, it's not don't kill. It's not don't kill. Uh, if you're in Exodus 20, just flick over the page for Exodus 21. And verse 12. Still God speaking. Still part of these laws. Not the Ten Commandments, but the, the next laws he gives. Exodus 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. If you murder someone, the punishment in God's country, Israel, in God's law code, is good laws that comes from God, the only really just law code we've ever had, everything else is written by humans, is written by God. 
If you kill someone, says God, the punishment is not 10 years in prison, but death. That's how much God values life. But he does institute the death penalty. So you see, the, the commandment cannot be don't kill, because then you know, the executioner or whoever it was is breaking the commandment. In other words, in chapter 20, he says, don't, and there's a particular word, it's not quite murder, but we'll come back to that. God says, don't murder. And then he says about 10 minutes later, if someone does murder, you need to kill them. So that's why this command doesn't mean never kill under any circumstances. And as you look through the Bible, there are a very small number of circumstances where taking life is sadly necessary. Uh, One of them is that the state seems to have the power to to bring the death sentence. Um, Romans 13, Paul talks about the state, the authorities, which in his day were bad guys. They weren't lovely, nice liberal democracies, but they have the power of the sword, he talks about. And as I've already seen, God instituted it many times in Exodus 20. I'm not saying, therefore, that we should institute it in England or we should all go campaign for it. I realise there are difficult political questions there. It's just that God very clearly does institute the death penalty in his own state. So that's an exception. Warfare and self-defense. Almost all Christians have thought that if someone in, if you're in Ukraine and someone invades your country and you fight back and kill kill the enemy, that's not breaking this commandment. And there's an example in in chapter 22. Again, Exodus 22. Look at verse 2. Uh, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there is no blood guilt. For him, But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. See what's it saying? Someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night. It's dark. You don't know what's going on. Someone seems to be in your house, a baddie. And you, whatever, you whack him and he dies. You're not guilty. He shouldn't have broken into your house. You don't know what's going on. It's dark. Not guilty. Okay, you've not broken the, the sixth commandment. If it's light, and you can see perfectly well that he's just trying to pinch a coke out of your fridge and you go and kill him well okay that's different but that kind of self-defense where the person you're in war well that also seems to be an exception so the commandment isn't don't kill but don't kill illegitimately it's a bit broader even than just don't murder again exodus 21 and verse 28 we're sort of diving into these nitty-gritty laws of the old testament but you see the principles that come out of them see here it's a case where it's not exactly murder but you have caused death Verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, killed, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay, so you've got an ox and it goes mad one day out of nowhere and sadly kills someone. Well, you need to destroy the animal. That's what we do, don't we? If your dog goes feral in the park and injures a kid, the, the dog will be put down. But it's not your fault. But look how it goes on, verse 30. Sorry, verse 29. But... If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but hasn't kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be pulled to death, stoned to death. See what the case is? It's not that you've trained your ox to go around killing people, like a sort of killer ox that you've let loose. It's just you've been so careless. You, it's happened before. You know it's a danger. You've been told you need to get rid of that ox. At the very least, pen it in, if not kill it. I know, nah. You know, I need it for my crops. I need it for... And it goes and does it again. Well, you're liable. It's kind of what we call manslaughter. It's like the driver who speeds through the city and knocks over the the student. It's not that he got into the car to deliberately go and kill a student, but through his carelessness, 
and recklessness, he has taken life. That also is a breach of the commandment. That the word that we translate murder is, 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 is broader than just murder. God cares about life. So the commandment is wider than just murder and also deeper, as we've seen. We've seen that in Jesus' words of the Sermon on the Mount. But just as sort of one last passage, promise. Just stay in the Old Testament and flick on to Leviticus 19. Leviticus is the next book of the Bible after Exodus. It's also full of these laws. Leviticus 19, and it's on page 98 of the church Bibles. The temptation to think is that Moses was given these Ten Commandments on stone, and they were just kind of out there rules, you know, don't kill people. And then Jesus turned up and made it deeper, made it about the heart. But that's, that's not at all right. It was always about the heart. Look at Leviticus 19 and verse 17. Again, part of these laws, still given at Mount Sinai, just not part of the Ten Commandments. Leviticus 19, 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. See, straight to the heart. The Old Testament is just as internal, just as spiritual, just as about internal dynamics as the new. Don't hate your brother in the heart, but reason frankly with your neighbor. In other words, settle your disputes, lest you incur sin before him, because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What Jesus is doing is not taking the commandments and saying, I've got something even deeper, but he's taking the commandments and dusting them off from the the muck that's built up on them over the years and saying, no, they were always about the heart. It's never been okay to hate, um, to get illegitimately angry. Because hate really is just murder before it's been fully born. That's the kind of language that John used in his letter. To, to hate someone is, is almost to want to kill them, but, but not going through with it because you don't want to go to prison or you don't want to face the consequences. Or Children, it's like, imagine you, you were actually living in a cartoon okay, and everyone was pencil drawing. Imagine everyone in this room was a pencil drawing. And you got really angry with someone. You get angry with your brother or sister for, for stealing your toy or angry with mum and dad for making you go to bed or whatever it may be. And you had a rubber. We're all drawings, you know, pencil drawings. You had a little rubber and you just rub them out. That's what it's like when you get angry with people. You're saying, look, I wish you weren't here. What you're doing is unacceptable. The world would be better if you weren't here or at the very least if you weren't here saying this right now. Get away from me. Essentially what we're saying is, God, you've got the world wrong because this person should not be saying this right here, right now. I hate him, let him go away. We don't articulate it like that, but that's what we're doing. Many of us are like pots boiling on the stove with, you know, with the lids on and the, you, you can sort of hear the bubbling water, it's bubbling up and we can just about keep the lid on, keep it, and then something triggers us and bang, we explode. We may not be shouty types, but actually we're driven by anger. Someone gets promoted over us at work and we fume because they've been blessed and we haven't. And, we, and essentially we're committing murder, says Jesus. We wish that person wasn't there. Uh, imagine if your thoughts actually had physical consequences. You know, like Darth Vader in the, in the films and he just sort of looks at people and they start choking. How many corpses would there be in your life? 
If every time you hated someone, they dropped down like, you know, you'd be a mass murderer, wouldn't you? Really, a mass murderer, a serial killer. Uh, How do you resist? How can we quash the anger that builds up within us? Well, by remembering that we've been given life to the full in Christ. That's why I started and laboured that point so heavily. You lack nothing. You're going to go to every blessing beyond your possible imagination. One day life is going to be so good that, that if I spent three hours this morning trying to describe how good it was, which I'm not going to do, don't panic, um, I wouldn't have started to give you even a taste of it. When you know you're blessed in that way, then when someone on earth takes away some short-term little benefit, the promotion you wanted, the sleep you were hoping to get, when the baby cries in the middle of the night and you have to get up, the boy you hoped was going to go out with you, not her, or whatever it is, whatever little benefit you lose, we don't need to get furiously angry and clamour for it, either with physical violence or with, with words that tear down or even just hatred in our hearts, because it's not that important. Our, our real blessing hasn't been taken away from us. If you've got God and all his promises, you have life to the full. And one day that fullness will be realised. It will happen. So you don't need to hold so tightly to all the things you do on the way that get us so angry and wound up. There's a traffic jam. What are all these idiots doing on the road? Why are they in my way? despite the fact they've probably got every right to be there as much as you have. What, I don't need to be so angry because, okay, God has decreed that I'm going to be in a traffic jam now. That has not taken away my eternal blessing. Before we wrap up, I do need to mention some, some harder things that this commandment speaks of. It goes deeper, as we said, about hatred and anger. But the actual physical command of not murdering still has a lot of relevance. 500 people will lose their lives in England and Wales today against their will. And those who kill them will not be prosecuted. Um, Those 500 people will be in the womb, which is by far the most dangerous place to live. Think of the worst area of the worst city you know in England. What's the worst city in England? I don't know. Manchester. Um, Think of the worst area of Manchester. It is far more dangerous to live in the womb. Uh, Since the late 60s in England, abortion essentially has become um, free, uh, accessible on almost any grounds, or not quite. And the Bible is very clear that life begins at conception. I know this is difficult to hear for for many of you, it will be. It is inconceivable almost that there is nobody here um, who has had an abortion or been part of that, that process. And remember what I said at the beginning, there is forgiveness for all of us. We've all broken this commandment in different ways. But we do need to be clear that taking life in the womb is a breaking of this commandment. It is taking life from someone who does not want to lay it down. And let me just ask you, if, if you're not a Christian, on what grounds, on what grounds do, do you think that taking life is wrong? Some of the, the, the um, strongest advocates for abortion uh, have said that, that actually there's no difference between taking a life in the womb and outside the womb. Okay, non-Christian, you know, saying, look, that, that all this stuff about being made in the image of God, about having value, it's nonsense. We're just bags of chemicals. We're animals. We're no different. We're just a bit more evolved than, than apes or badgers or flies or wasps. But there's no real difference between us. One professor, Peter Singer, Um, Ethicist, very well known, very well respected. Killing a defective infant 
He means a child that's been born with some sort of disability. Killing a defective infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Sometimes it's not wrong at all. Hear that? That is evolution speaking. This, this defective, his words, not mine, this defective child is not going to add to the species. It's not going to add value to the world. If you need to kill it and you're the parents, why not? It's what animals do. Just let it die. Now, I suspect everybody in the room is thinking that's horrible. But I do, let me just gently push you. If you're not a Christian, why is it horrible? Why isn't it true if all we are is animals? If all we are are sacks of chemicals strung together, here today, gone tomorrow? Why is it any different than two rocks bumping into each other and cracking? Why is it any different than the spider eating the weakest of her, her young? Well, it's different because we're made in the image of God. We are not simply animals. We have value. Again, please, if, if this is something you've been through, there is forgiveness. Jesus says this morning, I will forgive you. I suspect you don't need me to persuade you to feel guilty. Many people live with a crushing guilt. And the good news this morning is that that can be gone, forgiven. Not by pretending it wasn't wrong in the first place, but by coming to a God who says, look, I forgive all who come to me. Uh, Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, was involved in the killing of much of the early church. He was a front foot murderer in that sense. And yet God used him mightily. So abortion, taking of our own life, suicide, that is also a breach of the commandment. It's not unforgivable, it's not the unforgivable sin. Most often the question people ask when we, when we think about suicide is, well, if someone takes their own life, does that mean they can't go to heaven? Well, no, if they're a Christian, of course they can go to heaven. You will die before you've confessed all your sin. You walk out the door and a bus hits you. You won't have said sorry for the last sin. Frankly, you never say sorry for all your sin because you don't even notice most of them. There's no reason why in Roman Catholic theology you get cut off and there's all sorts of nonsense. There's no reason if you've lost someone, lost a Christian brother or sister um, to suicide, don't despair. I mean, it's horrible, I'm sure, and painful, but you don't need to despair. But there is no need, ultimately, to take your life, however bad life looks, because God has promised such good for us. And that's where we need to finish. So this commandment isn't just about not taking life, but about being images of, of our God who gives life. Do you see, look at the Leviticus verse again. You see how the negative, don't do this, implies the positive. You shall not hate your brother, Leviticus 19.17, Rather, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. That's the way all the commandments work. We'll think about that more next week. It's not just don't steal, but do give generously. It's not just don't commit adultery, but do love your husband and wife. It's not just don't murder. It is love. Lay down your life to bring life to others. And that obviously is what Jesus did. These commandments can be read not just as a list of what we're meant to do, but as a description of Jesus. He came and he never broke any of the commandments. So these commandments, he embodies them all. And in particular this morning, he embodies life. He came to heal, not destroy, to bring life, not to take it. His words, even the hard words that he speaks, are words of life and blessing. And then he gives up his own life to pay for our wicked hearts, our murderous hearts, our hearts full of hatred and anger. When we see all that he's done for us, how free it is, 
well, then we can hold lightly to the other things in our lives and, and just ask, how can I be a blessing to others? Wouldn't it be great to get home from work, walk into the door and think, how can I be a, a life giver to my family now? To walk into church on a Sunday morning and look around the room and say, how can I, how can I bring life to others? The new person, the, the lonely person, the person who looks sad, whatever it may be. How can I be a channel of God's life? He has life in himself. I don't need to have anything special because it's simply a, I'm a channel through which he works. And how does he work? Well, he worked by gaming up his own life. As he laid down his life, it led to resurrection and blessing and glory. As we lay down our lives sacrificially for others, the same pattern happens. It's as a church, as we learn to die, that we'll learn to live. As we learn to sacrifice ourselves, that actually we'll experience resurrection life and fullness. That is a call to you. Certainly don't murder. Don't hate. But even more than that, as you see all that God has done for you, bring life to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you had every right to come as executioner, as warrior, taking our lives for our rebellion against you. And yet so rich is your love, so um, without depth and bottom is your mercy that you came not to kill us, but to die so that we could, be, uh, so that we could live. We pray we'd hold fast to that good news and pray, therefore, that everything else that comes in this earthly life, be it wealth or career or relationships or family or all these earthly blessings, would we hold loosely and hold in your service, not becoming angry and hating those who threaten us, but rather knowing that all blessing is ours because of you and in you. Make us life-giving people, we pray, therefore, in your own name. Amen.